Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 50. Again, we've been studying the life of Joseph, and we're coming to the conclusion of his life. Really, I think we'll have one more sermon in this series. I'm sure you've probably heard somebody say before that grace is really not in the Old Testament. That's a New Testament thing. The God of the Old Testament is kind of hard and harsh and judgmental, and then you get to the New Testament and you experience grace. That's certainly not true. The Old and New Testament are one book. We call it the Bible. And God's grace is sprinkled all throughout the very beginning to the very end. And we're going to read a great example of grace this evening. Let's stand together and honor the Scriptures, and let's look at God's grace working in the life of Joseph as he extends grace to his brothers. We begin reading in verse 15. It says, And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin. For they did unto the evil, and now we pray thee, Forgive the trespass of the servants of God of thy father. Now I want to pause right there. There's no indication that that ever happened. And if that's what jo Jacob wanted, there were many opportunities that they had conversation. I mean, Jacob planned his funeral before he checked out of here. Don't you think he would have mentioned that to Joseph if that was something he was really concerned about? These brothers, in, in my understanding, were making this whole thing up because they didn't want to get in trouble. All right? It says, And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. And we could pause and say, why did Joseph weep? I, I, I don't know. But it could be that they thought this of him. That's what they thought of him. After all he had done for them and the grace he had showed, that's what they thought he would do. And that, 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 that hurt him. Think that, that, that You think that that's how I would treat you now? Verse 18, And his brethren also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? If you mark things in your Bible, you ought to mark that question. But as for you, ye thought evil against me. But God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. If you mark in your Bible, you ought to highlight that verse. Mark it up. Pay attention to it. It is a, a beautiful verse in the Bible. Verse 21, Now therefore fear ye not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. I want to preach to you tonight about forgiveness requirements. Forgiveness requirements. Some things that you're going to need if you're going to be able to have biblical forgiveness in your life. And we're going to look at them together tonight. Heavenly Father, again, we've prayed several times, but it's because we need you. We're absolutely dependent upon you. There's nothing that I can say if it's not energized by the Holy Spirit that will be of much help to these people. And I pray that you would meet with us tonight. That you would help us to take this great truth and learn how to live by it on a regular basis. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. So we begin reading in verse 14. You find that it really is kind of human nature that when you fear the worst, your mind has a tendency to do some strange things. I heard the story of a man. He was uh, from the city, but he was traveling, and he found himself out kind of in the country, just long ways from what he considered civilization, and he got a flat tire, and it was raining, of course, and 
So he, he was really going to try and change this tire, but when he got out to change his tire, he found that he had no lug wrench. And up in the distance, he could see a, a farmhouse, had some lights on up there, and so he, he thought, well, I'm just going to have to walk in the rain and head up to that farmhouse and see if I can borrow a, a, a lug wrench to change my tire. It was late at night, it was cold, it was rainy and all those, and so as he's walking, he's in the rain, he's, he, he begins to think the worst in his mind, and, he, and he, he's beginning to think, he's saying, you know, this farmer, he's, he's just an old country codger out here in the middle of nowhere, and here I am, a city slicker, and he's, he's in his warm bed, and I bet he won't even get out of that warm bed to help me, and, and then when he gets to the door, he's going to be angry at me, and he, he's not going to want to help me, and he's just thinking all of these things in his mind, and so when he gets to the door, he, 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 he knocks angrily. I mean, you, you know, there's an angry knock. He bangs on the door, and the farmer's startled, and he says, Who is it? And that, that, that city slickers worked himself up in such a way that he hollers out, You know who it is, and you can keep your stinking lug wrench. I wouldn't borrow it from you if it was the last one on the earth. And he stormed off. And you understand, in our minds, sometimes we assume the worst, and we behave accordingly the way that we've thought. Joseph's brothers were terrified that now Joseph is going to punish them now that their dad is gone and is no longer there to temper. But the truth of the matter is, as we study this text, their fears were very irrational. They weren't founded on anything logical. I mean, understand, they miscalculated that Joseph had already forgiven them some time ago. You say, where do you get that? In Genesis 45 and verse 5, Joseph says, Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that, you're, that you sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. Je Joseph had come to terms with this a long time ago. He had forgiven his brothers some time ago. He was already settled in that department, but yet these brothers were very, very concerned and worked up about it. I saw one time a sign that said this. It said, To err is human. To forgive is not company policy. And I think sometimes in humanity, we, we, we understand that sentiment, don't we? We, 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 we laugh at that and we, we kind of understand that, but it does give us a hint at people's natural inclination not to forgive. We, we just have a, a natural sinful DNA that's programmed not to forgive people. Or, or maybe it's, we, we'll forgive a little bit to some extent. It's kind of like that question that Peter once asked Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive? I mean, should I give seven times? And you understand that that old text was about forgiveness, of course. And, and the Pharisees taught that you, you really had to forgive three times, but you didn't, you didn't have to do any more than that. And, and isn't that kind of what our natural inclination is? I'll forgive a little bit, but, but boy, I've got my limits. And it just kind of indicates kind of how our nature is. Let's face it, we need to forgive. We need to forgive because it's the right thing to do. We need to forgive because we have been forgiven. But we also need to forgive because, listen, this is very important. We all need forgiveness. So I want you to think tonight, what would your marriage be like if you did not forgive one another? A lot of times I'll say it this way. You can't take two sinners, put them within four walls, and not expect there to be some kind of friction somewhere along the way. Listen, if you don't learn how to biblically forgive, you are really going to struggle. You're going to have to learn how to forgive as a family between parents and children. Listen, let's be honest. Parents don't always handle themselves right. I, sometimes when I'm preaching to teenagers, I ask them, 
How many of you have ever seen your, your parents royally blow it right in front of your face? And when their parents aren't around, teenagers say, seen it happen. They might be a little hesitant to do it tonight, but they've seen it. Maybe they're saying, nope, nope, I'll do it tonight. They, they've seen them. But we've, we've all watched our kids mess up and offend us. Listen, what kind of family life are you going to have if there's no forgiveness? Hey, think about it. We've got a good church. God is blessing us. And I like the family atmosphere that we have. But listen very carefully to me. You cannot have 400 plus sinners worship in the same building on any given Sunday without somebody bumping into somebody else in some way. Somebody is going to say something, do something, forget something, act rudely, uh, act unchristianly. I know that might shock some of you that that happens around church life, but it is going to happen. And I'm going to tell you right now, you can get mad and move to another church and it will happen there, or you can learn how to forgive. You see, we all need forgiveness. Genesis 50, of course, is a classic example of a passage about that subject. And so tonight, again, I want to give you two requirements for forgiveness. Two requirements for forgiveness. Number one, we must have the right position before God. I want to draw your attention again to verse 19. It is such a great question and such a great verse that it's often overshadowed by verse 20 because verse 20 is so amazing. But look what Joseph says. Am I in the place of God? Joseph clearly knew who he was and who God is. And that's important that we maintain the right position before God. Isn't that? There was a parable that Jesus told. Uh, we often refer to it as the parable of the unmerciful uh, servant. I want to teach that story real quick. Remember, the story is told of a man who, who owed a great debt to a king. The king was going to throw him into prison to make him pay his debt. And, and as the story is told, it's the equivalent of, of millions of dollars that this man owed the king. I think everybody in this room, I mean, if you were indebted and had to pay that moment millions of dollars in debt, I mean, I think generally speaking, just about every single one of us would struggle to do that. And they, he threw himself at the mercy of the king and said, please, please, just give me a little bit of time. Would you just be patient with me? And the king said, I'll tell you what, I will wipe away all of your debt. Don't even worry about it. Man, the guy's happy. He's skipping down the road. What a great day. I can't believe this. Not only am I not going to jail, all of my debts have been forgiven. And he bumps into a guy that owes him 15 bucks. He says, hey, man, I know you. You owe me 15 bucks. And the guy says, I don't have it. But if you'll just give me some time, I promise you I'll pay it. And the Bible says that that guy literally started choking him. Give me my money. I want my money right now. And has him thrown into prison. Well, clearly the story is about how God has forgiven us of a debt we could never possibly pay. And it shows us of how we need to treat others that have offended us. Our offense to God is so much greater than the offense that we give to one another. And so we must learn how to forgive. And this, this, is, injust, this is the injustice that happens when we try to take God's place. And so Joseph says, I'm not in God's place. I, years before Jesus ever told this story, he said, how can I treat you that way? I, I'm not in the place of God to do that. I recognize 
who I am and who God is. Now think about who Joseph was. He was the second most powerful man in the world. I mean, at that time, Egypt was a superpower, and Joseph was second only to Pharaoh in his power in the then-known world. And notice what he is saying here. He recognized that he was not more powerful than God himself. I want to teach you tonight this question, am I in the place of God? It's a great question to ask yourself when you're struggling with forgiveness towards somebody who has wronged you. Romans 12 and verse 19, Paul taught us this. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. You know what he's teaching us there? You are not the judge, God is the judge. So in many cases, let God take care of that. Can I teach you some truths tonight that will help you have the right position before God? One, recognize that God is sovereign. You see what Joseph said in the next verse? Ye thought it evil unto me, but God meant it unto good. Meaning this, God was in control. God was sovereign over this. In fact, verse 20, in Genesis 50 and verse 20, is the Old Testament equivalent of that wonderful verse in the Bible, Romans 8, 28, that says, And we know that God works all things together for good to them that love God and are the called according to His purpose. This is a very, very similar parallel passage that teaches us the same truth. That God can take the bad in our life and do something good with it because He is sovereign. Folks, we need to be careful when we use verses like this. I understand that. Ye meant it unto evil, but God meant it unto good. We know that God works all things together good. We need to be very careful because I don't ever want to minimize the misery and sin that some people have had to endure. Folks, let me, let me just be very pastoral here. You, you, you want to be careful that you don't say to somebody who's going through pain and has been wronged and been offended to just say, well, you know, God's in control. He, you know, he'll, he'll take something good out of that. As if, as if what has happened to them is nothing. Listen. We talked about Stephen today in the morning service. Understand, there have been missionaries, God's people that have carried God's message to distant lands. There have been missionaries who have been slaughtered for sharing the gospel. You don't just look at somebody and say, well, well you know, you got to work something good out of that. I mean, I understand we don't want to be glib about that. Listen, I know right now godly pastors who have been totally mistreated and even in some cases, driven from their churches. I know of faithful spouses who have been devastated by unfaithful partners. I know innocent children who have been abused by, by the very people that should have been protecting them. And I don't want to glibly say, well, you know, God's in control. I want to be careful about that. But in a generic sense, in a general sense tonight, we do need to recognize in our life that God is in control and God can take the pain and the problems in our life and turn them into purposeful events in our life that shape us to be what we ought to be. Elizabeth Elliot. We know that name. Her husband, Jim Elliot, was murdered by the savage people that he was trying to reach. But I think what most people don't know about Elizabeth Elliot is that her second husband died of cancer. And she eventually wrote this. She said, The experiences of my life are not such that I could infer from them that God is good. 
gracious and merciful. To have had one husband murdered and another one disintegrate body, soul, and spirit through cancer is not what you would call a proof of the love of God. In fact, there are many times when it looks like just the opposite. My belief in the love of God is not by inference or by instinct. It is by faith. That's a powerful statement. And I don't think Joseph was saying, oh yeah, you, you rascals, you. You meant it for evil, but I tell you what, God, boy, he was in control, he meant it for good. No, I think Joseph had scars. I think Joseph had pain. Joseph had experience that he would never want to go through again. But what Joseph did do at the end of the day is he said, I am not God. And I am not in the place of God. I did not script my life. I have had few days full of trouble. But I do know this, that by faith I can recognize that God has ordered my steps. That God has moved me every uh, a place that He's wanted me to be. And God has fashioned me to be the person that He wants me to be. And I rest by faith in the control and the sovereignty of a good God, even though I can't always see it. See, we must believe with conviction that God is in control of our lives. I do not, I want to be very careful. I do not believe that anything bad in your life is, well, God did that. No, no, no. God is good. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes. God does not tempt any man for, with evil. God is a good God. But I am telling you this, God is so good that He is able to take bad and turn it into something positive. And I have to believe that by faith. I want you to see, secondly, that God, God is good. God is sovereign. He's in control, but He is good. Because I've, I've tried to point this out to you at times. If, if somebody who is sovereign is not good, then their sovereignty can turn into tyranny. But God is a holy God. He is a, so therefore, everything he does is governed by his holiness, so his sovereignty, his control is governed by his holiness, and his, his holiness governs his goodness. He cannot change. He's immutable. He is a good God. And I want to praise his name tonight that he is always good. Again, we see that. Ye thought it evil unto me, but God meant it unto good. Again, we point out that God is clearly able to use our suffering for good. These two things go hand in hand. And Joseph was very clear to say, am I in the place of God? I'm not as good as God is. My judgment won't be as clear and as good as God's judgment. I'm not in control. God's is in control, and I'm content to let him be in control. We must do the same thing. Missionary David Livingstone, he one time met a king of a tribe, and if you've ever been or are aware of that, you understand that cultures are all different everywhere you go, and sometimes when you meet a sovereign in, in a place like that, they, it's just some of their customs you just kind of have to go with. I had a friend who was, grew up in a mission field, and he was an honored guest at a, at a tribal feast one time, and they gave him a delicacy, and it was like a, the, a, a giant portion of lard from a sea turtle, and he had to eat it. And he said, I, I asked him, I said, was it, he said it was the worst thing that I'd ever eaten in my life. He's like, but if I didn't eat it, boy, that would have been big, big, big trouble there, you know. So I'm glad I live in America. <laughs> David Livingston met this king of a tribe, and they were to make a customary trade. 
the king gave David Livingston a walking stick. And he wanted David Livingston's goat. Now, I'll be honest with you, my, my wife grew up in a rural area and she likes goats. And she's often said to me, we should get some goats. And my answer is emphatically, no. I don't know why anybody needs or wants a goat. I don't like goat meat. Yes, I've tried it. I don't like goat milk. Yes, I've tried it. I don't like goat cheese. Yes, I've tried it. I don't like goats. They stink. They eat stuff. They're a mess. No goats. But David Livingston liked this goat because he was using this goat's milk to help with some of the health problems that he was having. So he had to make the trade. He gave his goat for a stick. As they were leaving the village, he, he was complaining about it. He, he was kind of griping, like, man, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with this stick. I mean, anybody can get a stick anywhere. I mean, walking sticks are a dime a dozen. Now I don't have a goat. I got a lot of journeys ahead of me before I can get another goat. I mean, what am I going to do? And he was kind of complaining. And one of the, the guides that was with him said, Mr. Livingston, I don't think you realize you, you weren't giving a walking stick. That's not a walking stick. He said that's the king's own scepter. And with that scepter, you will now be able to enter any village that you choose. And that opened up the doors of the gospel in that region and in that area. You understand, sometimes what we see in our life as being very negative, and being very bad, and being very harmful and painful, again, I'm not suggesting that that's a light thing. Joseph wasn't. He clearly said, you meant it unto evil and trouble. But God is sovereign. God is in control. And God is good. And so God can use these things. See, sometimes when we think we have gotten a raw deal, if we will keep our spirit right, God can work a great work. And so here's the first requirement that I'm giving to you. Whenever you have been wronged, keep it in proper position before God. Recognize you are not God. Be content to let Him be God. Trust in Him. Go to Him. Petition to Him. Make sure you stay in submission to Him. Let Him be God and you follow Him. Number two, I want you to see this. We must have the right disposition towards others. So we need to keep the right position before God. Am I in the place of God? Oh, no, no, no. I will not stand in the place of God. But we also need to have the right disposition towards others. As you notice that the text points this out in verse 17 toward the end, it says that Joseph wept when they spake unto him. Again, I pointed out to you, I, I kind of think that he, he, his feelings were hurt, that they thought that much of him, that that's the way he would respond. But we clearly see his compassion toward them at the end of verse 21. It says he comforted them. Hey guys, don't worry about it. Hey, everything's going to be alright, it's going to be good. It says there that he spake kindly to them. Come on, we got a lot of kids in here tonight. How many find it difficult sometimes to speak kindly to your siblings? Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of you are like, yes! Man, here he is, he's showing them compassion. He's being kind to them. He has the right disposition towards the very people who had offended him. Let me ask you a question tonight. 
How do you feel towards those that have hurt you? I want to point something out to you that I think is kind of therapeutic and helpful to us from Scripture. You ever heard somebody say this to you? Well, you just need to forgive and forget. How many of you ever heard somebody say that before? Can I just help you tonight? That's not always possible. And did you notice Joseph didn't forget? He said, yeah, I remember what you did. You meant it unto evil to me. Sometimes you are unable to forget the things that have happened to you. Listen, I'm speaking to human beings tonight. You are like me. You're made of the same stuff I'm made of. You have the same sin nature I have. Do you know there are things that people have said to me that still echo in my mind to this day? I don't know that I can ever forget them. It's hard. In fact, I would say this to you that sometimes God uses the memory of how we were hurt to prevent further hurt in our life. I mean, think about it, guys. What if, what if now that Jacob is dead, his brothers said, Hey, Joseph, you want to go on a day trip to Dothan with us? I'd probably say, Yeah, count me out. If you're not tracking me, Dothan's where they threw him in a pit and tried to kill him. So, you know, maybe, just maybe, he would say, Appreciate it, guys. You have fun and tell me how that goes. Not going. Is that fair? Thank you. <laughs> I want you, to, you say, well, what's the right disposition then? I mean, you know, obviously if, you, if there's some things you can't forget, you can't bear a grudge, you can't, you can't harbor bitterness and resentment, you don't, you don't want to mule over it all of the time and think about it constantly and consistently. No, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Here is the proper disposition to have towards somebody that wronged you from our text tonight. Number one, don't use your power to make the other person pay for what they did. That's biblical forgiveness. It's not just completely forgetting about it. Sometimes you can't do that. Now listen, if God gives you the grace to just put it out of your mind and you're like, yeah, I, I totally forgot that happened. Praise God for those moments. And God can help you do that. But there are some things in your life is you're going to really struggle with that. But here's the thing, don't, don't take it under your, your power to, to harm or hurt somebody when you could. Don't use your power to make the other person pay for what they did. You see, a great test of forgiveness is when you have the power to make them pay, but you choose not to. You know, there's a biblical word for that. It's called meekness. A lot of times we think meekness is being a weak person. Uh, the Bible says that Moses was the meekest man on earth. When I read about Moses, I do not read about a weak man. I mean, think about Moses. He killed a man with his bare hands. I wouldn't call that weak. Uh, he marched into Pharaoh's presence and said, hey, listen, I'm just delivering a message. Let God's people go. Well, who's this God? He's Jehovah. I am that I am. I mean, he's just telling you. And if you don't let him go, boy, we're going to have some problems. Like what? Well, let me show you what's going to happen. He throws down the staff. I mean, he's doing all these things. He takes his staff, sticks it in the water, turns into blood. I mean, he's, he's going head to... Listen, this man led over a million people who were whining and complaining and, and difficult on every occasion. And Moses led them with strength and with, with determination. Listen, I don't, when, when I read about Moses, I don't read about a, a weak person. But the Bible calls him a meek person. Another person and character in the Bible we think of when we think of meekness is, is Jesus. 
He's often described as, as meek and lowly, so we could say it this way, meek and humble. Boy, there was anybody, there was anybody who was strong in this world. Even in his humanity, Jesus was strong. Don't you ever let this world paint the picture to you that Jesus was some kind of uh, sissified. I, I mean, I, again, I understand that might not even be politically correct to, to, to say, but I don't really care what's politically correct right now. Jesus wasn't some kind of weak-kneed, spaghetti-spined, kind of backward ask. Man, listen, I think boy, he would toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Pharisees, look them right in the face and say, Woe unto you, you serpents, you whited sepulchers. Man, he'd march into the temple and say, This is my father's house. And he was consumed with zeal. Oh, after a beating and a whipping, he carried his cross halfway up Cal Calvary's hill. And he's described as meek? Oh, yes. Why? Because he could have called legions of angels. He had the power to destroy and to consume this wor world with just one word. Yet he hung suspended between heaven and earth so that he could save us. That's meekness, my friend. He had the power to crush, but he didn't use it that way. Listen, sometimes we might have the power to hurt back. Oh, you said that to me. Let me tell you what I can say to you. Oh, you did this to me. Look what I can do to you. Listen, friend, true forgiveness says I'm not going to use the power and authority that I have to hurt you. Oh, no, I won't do that. That's why we need to be filled with the Spirit. And remember, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness temperance friend tonight our relationships are enhanced when I give up my right to hurt you for hurting me I'll say that again my relationships are enhanced when I give up my right to hurt you for hurting me I want you to see here Here's another thought. Don't keep score. Baseball season's coming up. I like baseball. I really, I really do like baseball. It's the first sport I ever started playing. I like baseball. Catchers and pitchers are reporting very soon. One thing I, I don't like about baseball, and I'm going to go ahead and say it tonight. I haven't said it in a while, but I'm going to say it. I don't like t-ball. I hate it. Now, I understand little kids have to learn how to play, and t-ball is a great way to do it, but I just hate, hate how weak our society has come. I can't see, a, lot of, a lot of parents sign their kids up for sports that their kids have no desire whatsoever to play, and so t-ball drives me nuts because it's just jam-packed with little kids that don't want to be out there. They're playing with dandelions. Drives me nuts. They, I, listen, I don't know what mom came up with the idea of snack at t-ball, but it ought to be federally outlawed. <laughs> Why? Because I'm so tired of little kids. What's for snack? We're playing ball here. Who cares? There is no snack. Well, what kind of chips you got in there? I want a Capri Sun. Shut up. We're playing ball here. I'm tired of everybody getting a trophy. You didn't even win a game. You don't get a trophy if you don't win a game. Yeah, amen. You think that's going to happen at the, at the judgment seat of Christ? He's just going to give out trophies to everybody for participation? There ain't going to be no participation trophies in heaven, and there ought not be participation trophies in t-ball. That's good preaching right there, I'll tell you. 
So since there's curmudgeons like me that don't think you should give trophies out to everybody for doing nothing, they just said, I'll tell you what we're going to do, we're not going to keep score then. Well, they did a sociological study. I mean, this is a true study. They, they did this. That when they, they put a bunch of girls in sports, and, and, and in the girls in sports, they put them all in, and you can say, if you, you can like this or lump it, but this, I'm just telling you what the study did. They put all these girls in sports, and they did not keep score. And you know what? The vast, vast, vast majority, in fact, maybe even all of them, didn't even care. They're just out there to play, to have fun. Well, I'm going to say this right now. I'm not a girl. And so... Having, playing for fun. Winning is fun. That's what's fun. That's why you play the game, to win. That's what's fun. And you know they did that same study with guys and they didn't keep score? And without fail, there was always some guy on the team that kept score for them. So I said all that to say this, I signed Mark up for T-ball. And, and, and I was typically aggravated. Shut up, there's no snack. Get on base. What are you doing, man? Come on, let's go. Forget about snack. Quit playing with a dandelion. You know, I was helping coach. <laughs> so at the end of the game, at the end of Mark's first game, he said, he said to me, Dad, who won? <laughs> so I was in my usual foul mood after dealing with four- and five-year-olds in T-ball, and I said, well, it's kind of lame, son. They don't keep score in this league. You know, nobody gets out and everybody bats. It's really dumb. I don't know why they do that. And, 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 and I was kind of in a foul mood, and he said, well, actually, we won, Dad. <laughs> I said, how you figure? He said, well, I counted. I kept score. Well, I don't know how he kept score. I don't know exactly how he did his count, but, but he did. It was kind of funny. About three or four games into the season, he he kind of had his head down. I said, what's the matter? He said, we lost tonight. <laughs> I thought, well, they're not even keeping score, and if you're making them score, you should always win, man. I mean, come on, you know? Now, we can laugh about that, and we can talk about that, and it's one thing to keep score in a game. But you better be very careful in life not to do that. Well, this person did this to me, and they, and, and they did that to me. You have to be very careful about that. In fact, I want to point something. I want to bring something to your remembrance here. Joseph named his firstborn son Manasseh, didn't he? And if you can remember from weeks ago when we studied that, if you remember what Manasseh meant, that was intentional. It was intentional on two fronts. One, he gave him a Jewish name, a Hebrew name. So he clearly wanted to make sure that his sons were not Egyptians. But secondly, he gave the name... And he, and he said this, I'm going to name him Manasseh because it means this, he causes me to forget. Now that didn't mean that he had amnesia. I mean, we pointed out that he said human and unevil. He, he, knew the, he knew what had happened. But what it did mean is that he had put the incident behind him and he wasn't going to bring it up for ammunition anymore. Guys, let me just point this and we'll get out of here tonight. If you're listening to me and you're saying, well, don't, don't use the power that you have to hurt somebody that's hurt you, and, and don't keep score about who did what and who did this. Maybe you're thinking the common denominator between those thoughts is this, humility. I think humility is the first ingredient in a proper attitude towards people who have wronged you. I've said this to you before, those that know grace show grace. 
If you go back to that parable about the unmerciful servant, isn't that humility? Somebody says, man, God's forgiven me so much. I'm going to forgive you. It takes humility. A lot of times that's our problem. We're so filled with pride that we don't have the right disposition or other people. We kind of take a superior position. We We think something like this. Well, I know I've offended people, but I would never do that. We get on our high horse and we don't have the right attitude towards other people. And I'll tell you, if you're going to experience and practice forgiveness in your life, you're going to have to make sure that you recognize who you are before God. And recognizing who you are before God is going to help you have the right attitude toward other people. In 1880, James Garfield was elected President of the United States. But only after six months... He was shot in the back with a revolver. A lot of times we even use that expression, don't we? Stabbed in the back. And somebody got you from behind. Somebody shot him in the back six months into his presidency. They rushed him to the hospital, and the doctor probed the wound with his finger to try and find the bullet, but he could not find the bullet. So then he took a silver-tipped probe, and he began to... uh, dig in there to try and find the bullet to get it out. He still couldn't get it out. They transported Garfield back to Washington, D.C., where teams of doctors kept trying to locate the bullet, kept trying to probe this wound over and over. In fact, in desperation, they reached out to Alexander Graham Bell, the one that invented the telephone. They got him down there to see if he could locate the metal inside the president's body. He came, and he too failed. If you know history, Garfield hung on for a few months and then finally died. Interestingly, he did did not die because he was shot. He died from infection in the wound. See, that repeated probing, which the physicians were trying to help him, actually killed him. You know, know, I, I think there's a point to be made there in history. It's kind of the same with people. Sometimes we are damaged less by our hurts. There's a single person in this room hadn't been stabbed in the back by somebody. And that hurts. Listen, I, I, again, I'm not trying to make light. I've never been shot. I've been shot with a BB gun. A friend of mine shot me with a BB gun. You ever seen old Western movies before where they say, dance? My friend took a BB gun and he said, dance, and I didn't dance. He shot me right in the leg. It hurts. Sometimes in life you're going to get hurt. And it hurts. I'm not trying to minimize it. But sometimes, you know what hurts us way worse than the bullet of somebody's sinful offense? Our reaction to it. So let me ask you a question tonight. Do you have a tendency to take the place of God? Do you have a tendency to become the judge and the jury in every situation when you've been wronged? I would like to encourage you. Keep the right position before Him. Learn to have enough faith to leave the matter with Him. Number two, what is your attitude towards those who have wronged you? Do you consistently demonstrate meekness 
Have you been one of those people that has learned how to keep score? I pray that the Lord would help us to have the right disposition towards one another. It's so easy to get bitter, to get out of whack, to get arrogant and proud. I pray the Lord will help us tonight.